But here's what I want you to think about and where we're going to make the connection today is we don't just tell a story and go home. We take God's word and apply it. So this is what I want you to think on as we carry on in God's word this morning. That your view of God, your view of who God is, will unequivocally determine your entire outlook on life. That's going to be our focus this morning. Your view of God, what you think about God, will undoubtedly shape your view of the world around you. So that's what we're going to look at today in what happens. So let's start reading in verse 16. Let's read through verse 24, and we'll kind of get into our study today. Verse 16, as we were going, and just a little point of reference, remember who's writing this book of Acts? Luke. So Luke has now joined this party because you see the, the transformation of the tone. It goes from they and them to we. So Luke has joined Paul and Silas. And remember who else is with them? Timothy. We were introduced to Timothy last week as well. So you've got at least four gentlemen traveling together on this journey, probably with some others. But he says, as we were going to the place of prayer, that riverside place, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them into the, into the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. You see the change? <laughs> We're not talking about quiet conversations by the riverbank anymore. It gets violent. It gets loud. But let's take a look at what's going on. So it says, on a day that they were traveling to the riverside. That riverside moment with Lydia and the other women was not just a one-time deal. Because of a lack of synagogue, we, they were continuing to travel and meet and spend that time in prayer with any that would listen. And so on a day they were traveling to the riverside, the team is harassed by a young slave girl, as she's defined. One who is inflicted with a spirit of divination. Let's talk about what that means really quick. The word tells us, God's word tells us, she brought gain to her masters by fortune telling. And so a spirit of divination is just that one that's a medium. That's a, a scripture calls a necromancer, one who is involved in the dark arts, one who's involved in, in magic or fortune telling or whatever it might be. There's a lot of terminology for it. But today that term medium, people visit a medium today 
an intercessor into the spirit world, that's exactly what this girl is doing. But it says she's inflicted by a spirit of divination, meaning she is possessed by the devil. That's giving her powers to have an understanding of what's going on. Call it fortune telling or, or whatever you, you want to call it. That's what's happening. And so she was a slave and therefore her owners made money off of this quote unquote gift that she had. And so she's now harassing Paul and Silas and the others saying, these men follow a most high God and are telling you the way of salvation. But Paul would understand, being a former Pharisee and a, someone who's very familiar with God's word, what God has said about things like this. There are multiple scriptures, but just one specifically in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 31. God speaking says, do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourself unclean by them. That's God's word. Paul would probably understand that. There's, there's more scriptures in, in the word of God than just the one. And so multiple times God would speak to this. But remember, the enemy is not going to relent. In whatever he believes, in whatever ground he believes that he owns, that he controls, he's going to do everything in his power to control that territory. Right? And that's why I remember in the, in the battle that we have right now, the conflict that we have, based on what Jesus said, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So the gates of hell have been set up in and around Philippi. They are claiming territory in that, in that land because there's no synagogue. There's, God's word is not prevalent. And so therefore the enemy was just attacking the people and, and setting up camp there. But yet Paul comes in. And so the enemy sees Paul, Silas, and the others as a threat to their dominion, their territory. And so they act. But do you see the sleight of hand that the enemy used? She's a slave and she's under control by somebody else. She's imprisoned to her circumstance. But also that imprisoned by the enemy who is using her to speak fortunes or whatever else for gain. But by the words that she uses against Paul and Silas, what is the enemy doing? Did he tell a lie? No. No. He very plainly said, these men are following the most high God. They're proclaiming you the way of salvation. Everything that enemy, that spirit was saying through this slave girl was accurate. It was true. But for what intent? And this is where we today have to be extremely careful by what we hear that we, even though it might be true or a half truth or whatever else, we've got to be very careful as to the intent of the things that are said or the things that we take in to influence our life or find ourselves caught up in agreement with a spirit that does not align itself with God's word. It can sound very similar. It's a problem with a lot of other religions and, and things today. They sound similar to Christianity. They sound similar to a true biblical faith. But the reality is, just because they use some of the same words, doesn't mean the intent is the same. And that's what's going on here. What the enemy was saying was really just a, a half-truth. 
It's exactly what he did in the garden in, in original with Adam and Eve. He said, did the Lord really tell you that you couldn't eat of the tree? He said, you will not surely die, but your eyes are going to be opened. And, and in so doing, you will be like God. And, and that's what your, God was saying, that's what your death would be, is that you would be awakened to the reality of your circumstance and you would be like God. And so God was trying to confine you to that. That lie that he told sounded true enough to Adam and Eve and they partook and sin entered the world and here we are today. But Paul's team, did they need advertising? They could have allowed this girl to continue to speak that, that word, that phrase, but they didn't need advertising. They didn't need anybody else to proclaim what they were doing or why they were doing it. How many times did Jesus hush the spirits? During his ministry. God doesn't need help from anybody else. But had they just let that go, they could have maybe brought a lot of confusion to an area that didn't have a, an understanding of who Jesus was and, and what he did and, and what God he represented. And that's what we want to kind of spend a little bit of time talking about because in this area of Philippi remember it's a Roman colony and Rome has its own form of religion it's also in Greece and the Greeks have their own form of religion and within the Greeks and, and within the Roman religion they each have hundreds and hundreds of gods so when this young slave girl is proclaiming these men are following the most high God, anybody that's hearing her would think, well, which God? Is it Zeus? Is it Jupiter? Is it Apollo? Is it any one of the other hundreds that exist? Because the term God is applied to God of the sun, God of the sea, God of the harvest, God of everything. But Paul had rebuked the evil spirit had he rebuked the evil spirit in the name of God Almighty, again, a lot of the people would have went, in the name of Zeus? Who? What God are you talking about? But he doesn't do that, does he? He responds with the name that is above every other name, that these people need to be introduced to, and so he responds in the name of Jesus Christ. Come out of this girl. And that spirit immediately responds and leaves her. Micah chapter 4 verse 5 reminds us that this is an issue that will last until Jesus returns and makes all things new. Micah 4 5 says, For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Gods have existed from the beginning of time. God's command to the Israelites in entering the promised land was to do what? Rid this land of its gods. Tear down their altars. Because people will worship any god that they see fit, that will fit their circumstance, fit their comfort, and worship whatever it is they want, even if it's simply themselves. Paul would later write to the Philippian church, 
Philippians chapter 2, he says, So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They needed an understanding of who Jesus was. And so God allowed this slave girl and allowed that circumstance to present herself to Paul and his team so that the name of Jesus could be mentioned. But that sets off a series of events that will lead to more issues for this team. But a once enslaved girl to the enemy, this girl is now set free in Jesus' name. And and like many stories in Scripture, we're not quite sure what happens to her. But I would like to assume, I would like to believe that she found her way if she was released truly, not just of the Spirit, but by these owners, that she found her way to be a part of this new Philippian church that's being built with Lydia and the others. Just a thought, but we won't know. But the girl's owners got mad. They didn't get mad because Paul messed with their slave girl. That he removed the fortune-telling capability from her. They were mad because they lost money. They were more concerned about themselves. So they pronounced judgment on Paul and Silas based on their personal grievance of a loss of income. But they also used racial discrimination because these men are Jews. And they also used the Roman law about worshiping foreign gods, which actually, by historical record, is true. Roman law stated that you could not worship foreign gods that were not a part of the Roman slew of hundreds of gods that existed. If if there was any outside influence into the Roman culture with another form of religion, that was against the law. But what's their ultimate reason for bringing Paul and Silas before the authorities? Their loss of income. Their way of life was under attack. And so when they're backed into a corner, they attack themselves. And they get the crowd behind them. This crowd turns into a mob and, and you know the crowd joins in the effort speaking and, and, and yelling against Paul and Silas. And they joined in and Paul and Silas are then beaten with rods. How many times? We don't know. But one beat of a rod, I'm sure, hurt. But they were beaten, meaning multiple times with rods. And they were thrown into the inner prison kind of makes you wonder right make you think of anybody else that was brought before a roman magistrate and and beaten and unjustly convicted of crimes that he didn't really commit and sound familiar (laughs) well let's look at verse 25 and and really get to the heart of what i had presented in the beginning in verse 25 paul and silas are in prison their feet are in the stocks Verse 25 says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. We're just going to pause there. (laughs) Could you raise your hand now And believe that you would find yourself in the exact same position because of your faith in Christ. You're convicted, beaten, imprisoned, and find yourself singing worship songs to Jesus. 
Now, I, I don't say that in, in, a, in a mode of conviction or, or anything else, but I just want you to think about the scenario. Because I think our human mind would get the better of us. Our flesh would get the better of us. Jesus, I'm just trying to present your word to people. I'm just mentioning your name and I'm beaten. I'm thrown in prison. Think about Paul specifically. Was this his first issue of persecution? No, you go back a couple chapters and, and he was stoned almost to death. And here he is continuing on to preach the name of Jesus and now he's beaten and thrown in prison. He would speak to that later on in scripture. But, but here they find themselves praying and singing hymns so that the other prisoners are, are listening. You can imagine what they're listening to and maybe questioning how in the world can these guys in their circumstance praise God? How can they have any sense of joy when everything has gone wrong? So in the midst of their persecution, they pray and sing. Paul would write again to the Philippian church later in chapter 2, verse 17. He said, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul saying, hey, if I am killed, if I'm beaten, if I'm imprisoned, if, I'm, if I am that sacrifice that needs to happen so that this church can grow, whatever Christ wants, then I'll find joy in that. He would later write in 1 Thessalonians to the, the church at Thessalonica, which he will visit and we'll see in just the next chapter. But in 1 Thessalonians 5, he would write, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So no matter what is happening, no matter all the things that go right and the peace you have, praise God. No matter if everything is falling apart, praise God. No matter if you're having heart issues and you find yourself in the hospital, I hope Joe and AC are seeking the Lord in that time. If your car breaks down, if, you're, if your money is running thin, if you don't seem to have food, if things aren't going right at work, or if you just can't find, seem to get a job, <clears throat> if just, everything just seems to be falling apart, if, if there's, there's marriage issues, if whatever else is going on, we are told by God's word to give thanks and praise him in all circumstances. So it, it leads me back to my initial question. How can we do this? Are you supposed to just muster up all the strength that you can find within yourself? That the moment something goes wrong, you say, okay, oh, thank you, Jesus. Is that going to happen? If you're not seeking him at all, if you're not praising, praying, worshiping, making him the center of your life in every way prior to that, I will guarantee you it's not going to happen in the moment. So how do we make that happen to get to the point where we can pray and sing and worship and praise God in the midst of the worst circumstances that we experience? How do we get there? Well, we can read God's word and say, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to practice what God tells me. 
Sure, you can do that. But again, if you don't do it regularly enough, you're not going to do it in the situation. So there's a term out there that people will say, well, practice what you preach. You tell me all the time, just be happy, be joyful, you know, find your joy. It's okay. God, God's got this. Jesus, take the wheel. Whatever other term you want to apply to the situation that you provide others, practice what you preach. That's good. But how about you flip that term and preach what you practice? Preach what you practice. Meaning your life is a testimony. You're seeking God always. That we need to understand who he is. Do you know who God is? Answer that yourself. Do you truly know the God of the Bible? What do you know about him? How are you going to get to know him? See, the Bible tells us that God is spirit, that God is love, that God is good, that God is just, that God is faithful, that God is light, that God is near, that God is great and holy. You can read those words and go, okay, I believe it. In the same vein as when you read something on the internet, you believe it. As long as it's said, it must be true. No, do you know it? Do you believe it? There is effort we put on in God's word to get to know who our heavenly father is. Yes, it says it, so I believe it. That's one aspect. But I want to I give you something I think is important for us to know. Think about this phrase. Knowledge gives birth to intimacy. The more you know about somebody, the more intimate relationship you're going to have with that individual. Can we agree with that? The more you get to know your spouse, your husband, your wife, a friend, a co-worker, the more you know about them, the depth of knowledge that you know. You don't just know their name. You don't just know what they look like. You don't just know the, the surface layer stuff about them. But you get to really know them. You're going to have a closer, more intimate relationship with that individual, aren't you? Because that's what knowledge does. As believers, we're told that we partake in God's nature. He shares his nature with us. And in so doing, brings about more connectivity between God and us. 2 Peter 1 verses 3 and 4 says, By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. See, God believes that sharing is caring. So it says right there that he has given us everything we need for living a godly life. He goes on to say, We have received all of this by coming to know him. The one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. So how are you really going to know God? How are you really going to understand what it is to live a godly life and be a representative of Christ here on earth? You get to know who God is. 
And when you seek to know God more and more, He gives you more and more. And I know our heart's desires, I just want it all right now. I want it fast, I want it quick, I want it now. That's our American Western culture, right? Just give it all right now. Just let me have it. Oh, if God gave you more than you can handle, we'd be in trouble. We wouldn't know what to do with that information. It would frighten us. The true knowledge of who God is. But he says, come to me. Let me give you a little bit more and more. So that you can handle more and more about who I am and who I need you to be. So if knowledge gives birth to intimacy, then it follows suit that intimacy gives birth to joy. If you truly know somebody and have an intimate relationship with that individual, is that relationship just going to be marked by hatred and hostility and anger? No, it's not. It's not how it works. The more you know somebody, the more you love somebody, the more joy you have. Because you know them and they know you. And that mutual sharing of love and, 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 and appreciation and respect, etc., that, that it brings us joy. It's just the way it happens. It's the way God made us. The more intimate the relationship, the more joy you'll have knowing who God is and how much He really cares for you. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. In the presence of God, what does that look like? What does that feel like? Well, you need to get to know Him. Understand who He is to a greater degree, a greater depth. And so it would then make sense what Paul would write later on to the Roman church Maybe a scripture we're a little more familiar with in, in Romans 8.28. You maybe even know that reference. What does it say? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who were called according to His purpose. Was it the purpose of God for Paul to be beaten and imprisoned? Absolutely Yes. Why would a loving God do such a horrible thing? Because he's got a greater plan for an individual that needed to know him. And the only way that individual is going to get to know him is if Paul was in the inner sanctum of that prison. And that leads us to our next section. Verse 26 in Acts 16 says, And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Supposing that the prisoners had escaped, but Paul excuse me, cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, which translated actually means Lord, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus. You and your whole household. And you will be saved. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. 
And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. See how God works? See, this jailer in his whole life was committed to his work. He was fully invested in what he was doing as the jailer in that town, in that colony. Probably because of his position, had a lot of power, a lot of authority. Was probably a maybe former military, a very strong individual. But he was committed to what he was doing. So at the moment of perceived failure, that under his watch, the prison doors were opened. <clears throat> under his watch, regardless if it was a, a natural uh, situation, a natural disaster, an earthquake, natural occurrence, it doesn't matter. He took all the weight of that responsibility and put it on himself. So because I failed, I'm going to do everything I can to save myself and therefore kill myself and take my life under my control. It's kind of an interesting dilemma, interesting dynamic, isn't it? Because the law stated that whatever the prisoners were in prison for, if they escaped, the jailer would be responsible and therefore suffer the same fate that they, the prisoners were in prison for. So some of those prisoners were in for a capital crime and maybe were going to be punished by death and therefore he knew he was going to lose his life at the hands of others. So he tried to take his own life. But Paul immediately senses his need. His immediate need for love and understanding and compassion. And that's why Paul would cry out, don't stop. Hey, we're all here. Don't worry. Nobody took off. Yeah, the doors are open. Yeah, the chains fell off, but we are all here. Paul wasn't just speaking for himself. He was speaking for everybody. Because remember, as Paul and Silas were there praying and singing hymns, the other prisoners were listening. And maybe at one time, because the jailer was so close, his, his maybe had a house connected to the jail that he was listening to their prayers. He was listening to their songs. And that's what brought him to a position of humility. When he got that felt love and compassion from Paul and Silas that he saw and heard what they had just gone through, their unjust conviction, their beating, their imprisonment, for what? For believing in a God so much that they prayed to and worshiped and praised and rejoiced for in the midst of their hurt and sorrow and imprisonment that that became such a powerful testimony to the jailer that he needed to understand what it was that they had. And so he dropped on his knees. He said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's response was, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Again, there's the name of Jesus. And you will be saved. Now I want to take a moment because I think I want to bring further clarity to this word believe. It's important for us to understand. How would you, in fact, let me hear from you really quick. How would you, in one word or two words, define believe? What does that mean? Trust. Faith. Okay, we'll go with those. Trust and faith. Absolutely spot on. And I've used this example before 
that you all proved that you have faith, you have trust. You proved that. I see that in you. You know how? You sat down in those chairs. That takes faith and trust. That you willingly just sat down and placed your whole self onto that chair, believing, trusting that it was going to hold you up and fulfill its purpose? Or did you come in and take out your scientific notebook and, and check all the screws and, and determine the, the weight of steel or aluminum and the padding of that chair and make sure everything was tightened up before you sat down? Did you shake it? Did you move it? Did you scientifically prove that that chair was going to hold you up before you sat down? I didn't see anybody do that, but I'm going to assume no. No, you just sat down. That's faith. That's trust. But what I want to bring to your understanding is that belief is even deeper than that. And let me give you a, a visual understanding of what that means. That if you look at the definition of this word, it means to accept. Believe means to accept, to trust, to rely on, to commit yourself to. I believe in something or someone so much I'm committing myself to them. I believe in my wife and so I marry her. Commit myself to her. Trust her. But there's another definition I love because it really elevates the meaning of this word. You know what it is? Believe means to throw myself on as stable and trustworthy. To throw myself on. Now, this became real, this definition, for me just recently. We went on vacation and we traveled to Arizona. And, and one of the stops on our trip was to this town called Jerome, Arizona. It was a mining town. Because in Jerome, Arizona, it was like something to the effect of at the, the height of the mining town, a billion dollars worth of copper was mined from the mines there in Jerome. A billion in that day. Like talking about like early early 1900s a billion dollars tremendous mining town now really quickly we had the opportunity we, we kind of looked around the town and we were given a little history and and then he told us he said yeah, on your way out now stop by the little mine shaft there's one of the original mine shafts that exist and that mine shaft was 1900 feet straight down into the ground you know i don't know if you can wrap your mind around that at all but Anybody ever been to the top of the Empire State Building? Okay, that's about 89, 90 floors. So 900 feet, 1,000 feet maybe to the, what do you call that, antenna thing? Now, double that. At least two Empire State Buildings on top of one another could fit into this mine shaft. This, is, this thing is deep. Now, what they've done is they've allowed people to go and, and stand over that shaft and they've put lights down there so you can kind of see down in the, in the pit and they've got this glass covering over it that you could go and, and stand on. Now, I tell you what, I, I'm, I'm okay with heights typically, but when you're standing over a 1900 foot gap that just goes straight down into the pit of darkness... I literally could not bring myself to just stand on that glass plate. I couldn't do it. My, my kids did it. They're like, oh, watch me. And my daughter like jumping up and down. I'm like, you're crazy. I literally felt fear that I, I, I did. I took one of these steps like, nope, I can't do it. Like, I literally could not because, I mean, I, I, 
I'm a bigger guy. I'm like, okay, I'm trusting, but no, I don't have that much faith that this glass covering is not in the moment by happenstance going to crack and buckle under the weight of me. I'm not going to be the one to be on the news for that. I couldn't do it. I could not throw myself on with full trust and faith in that moment. I couldn't do it. But that's what belief means. I want you to think about that in light of our faith, our trust, our belief in Jesus as our Savior. Are you throwing yourself on? Full weight and measure, just falling face forward into him, trusting that he is who he said he is, that he did what he did, that what you read about is true and accurate, and your life is dependent upon everything that we read in this word that happened 2,000 years ago, that your full weight and measure of trust in Jesus Christ is that solid. Do you believe? That's what belief means. And so when they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, that's what they're talking about. And that's what we need to come to understand. I'm not questioning anybody's faith. Please hear me. I'm not questioning your belief in Jesus. But just to give us a better understanding as to what that means, because this man was about to fold his th- full weight and measure onto that sword. Because he had lost all faith and trust and belief in himself that he failed and in a moment's notice was going to end it because his full measure of faith was in him and it showed weakness, didn't it? And so Paul said, no, 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 we're here. It's okay. Let me share with you what you can throw yourself on. Jesus. And that's all he needed to do. Because that's all scripture teaches us. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. Life in Jesus' name. What did Jesus say in John 10, 10? I came therefore that they may have life and life abundantly. Now that doesn't mean I came so you can just have a a horrible, decrepit life. And then when, when I come again, then you'll go into eternity and understand joy. Yeah, that's a part of it. But Jesus came that we may have life and life abundantly here. Now, while you live, while you move and breathe, Jesus wants you to have the life that he wants you to have full of joy because you're walking in the presence because you understand and know God and his son now. And that's what they offered this jailer. That's why Paul was beat. That's why God said, no, don't go into Asia. No, don't go into Asia again. Go where I tell you to go because you need to meet Lydia. You need to meet this slave girl and you need to meet this jailer. I'm going to allow you to go through some hurt and some pain and some beating and imprisonment because they need to see your joy through that circumstance because of the full weight and measure of trust you have in me. And then open your mouth and share that with somebody who needs it. That's why, in God's sovereignty, he led them where he led them. So what do we see in this circumstance? Think about the jailer. From his human perspective, he was an absolute control, might, power, and authority over this jail, in this system, in this town, probably well known. And in a moment's notice, he goes from absolute control to absolute chaos. 
He goes from ultimate strength to ultimate weakness. He goes from life to desiring death because he failed. And spiritually, what did he experience? He went from hopelessness to hope in a moment's notice. He went from unbelief to belief, prison to peace, death to life, sorrow to joy in a moment's notice because of what he experienced and saw and witnessed in the testimony of Paul and Silas. And maybe, probably more likely, he would join him and his family in this new growing Philippian church. So it's it's interesting perspective, isn't it? So the next time you read through the book of Philippians or or study anything about Philippians, you can immediately know who is Paul writing to? Lydia, maybe this slave girl, this jailer, his family. It personalizes it, doesn't it? It's not just encouraging words for us, but it's a a personal letter of love and encouragement to these people that Paul came in contact with. Let's bring this to a close. Verses 35 through 40. It says, But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, Catch this. They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No! Exclamation point. <laughs> no. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported those words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. And so they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Real quick, just kind of bring this story to a close. So Paul and Silas revealed their Roman citizenship at this time. Did that bring up a question to anybody? Why now? Why not before God's sovereignty? Because had they brought it up when they were originally on trial... Who would have not heard the name of Jesus? The jailer. So they could have used their power and maybe had proof. They had proof. They, they carried around their citizenship card, for lack of the Roman term for it, and could have said, nope, Roman citizens, we're good. Had they just taken care of themselves, they could have gone on with their business, gone on with their missionary journey. But God saw fit that what was needed was the life of this jailer. Because God had a plan for this jailer. In some way, somehow. And some, maybe sometime we'll understand what that plan was. I hope so. Might be one person we'll look for in heaven. Tell me what happened after. Tell me what happened. What did you do? What took place in Philippi? What was your life like? So it was Holy Spirit inspired maybe for the salvation of the jailer, but maybe even a little bit of protection for this new church. Because now that they've provided a strong testimony of everything that they did and who they were, but yet who they worshipped and, and giving the name of Jesus to this new area, 
They would provide protection by revealing their citizenship because now this town, this colony, has nothing to do or to question anybody in this new church. Speaking the name of Jesus became legal, if that makes sense. And when they revealed that they were Roman citizens. So because a Roman citizen had connections with this church, it provided that church protection. Interesting. So, does any of this <laughs> provide us at all a deeper desire to, to know God more? I hope that answer is yes, but you have to answer that question. Do you desire to know God to a deeper level, a deeper desire to know him to a greater degree? So think about what a deeper knowledge and trust in God can provide. Everybody in this room could raise their hand, both hands, both feet, same time if that's possible, and tell me of all the rough, harsh trials and stuff that you've gone through. And yet in the midst of every single one of those, did you immediately stop and, and pray? Did you immediately sing hymns and songs of worship in the midst of your trial? Maybe you can say yes. Maybe you can say no. But what would a greater degree and understanding of who God is, trusting in Him, believing in Him, that no matter the outcome, we're already citizens in heaven. So whatever happens here, does it matter to the glory of God? Yes, as long as we're giving Him glory. The outcome is His. We just have to be willing that no matter what, at any given moment, we run into an individual, that individual may need to know a little bit more about Jesus, may need to have an understanding of who Jesus is. And the only Bible, if I can sound cliche, that they may ever open and read is going to be your witness and your testimony in the midst of trial, in the midst of hardship. How you respond is going to speak volumes to other people. But remember, it doesn't just happen. That's not something in your power you can just turn on in a heartbeat. Oh, I got to be a witness. No, you should be that living witness, that living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God so that when he desires and determines and allows some trial or hardship to come your way, your response, your testimony, your witness, your character, your joy, will be an amazing example to other people who don't understand how one can find joy and praise in the middle of a trial, in the middle of hardship. So, throw yourself on Jesus. He is stable and trustworthy. Give others a reason to believe by the way that you live your life, especially in how you respond when bad things happen. Let that be our witness. Amen?